Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 17th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700. Again, that's 714-954-0700. Or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. I'm proud to announce that California Slap Law Podcast has its first official sponsor. In the after show of the last episode, I talked about a new service I'd tried at BenchReporter.com. Now, the concept is that getting a sneak preview of how judges view and rule on motions can be a huge advantage when drafting a motion that will be heard in front of a particular judge. Well, the good people at BenchReporter.com have created a database of tentative rulings. Now, right now, it includes past tentative rulings from the following counties, Los Angeles, Orange, San Diego, San Francisco, Santa Clara, Contra Costa, and Sacramento. Now, for some time now, when I'm going to be filing an important motion, such as an anti-slap motion, I begin by checking the tentative rulings from the court where I will be bringing the motion. Looking at the tentative rulings from that particular judge on the specific sort of motion that I'm going to bring provides tremendous insight into how that judge thinks, or at least how his research attorney thinks. Just as you have prior motions on your computer that you draw from when you draft a new motion, judges and or their research attorneys have boilerplate language they pull up when they're going to draft a tentative ruling, when they're going to rule on a motion. It can be really helpful to see the cases that the judge will rely on in ruling on the motion and then to refute or embrace those decisions in your own moving papers. As an example, a few years back I was preparing to draft a motion to compel, so I checked the tentative rulings for the judge and found that she had a really strange interpretation of the statute governing such motions. She had denied every request for discovery sanctions because she was under the impression that a sanctions request had to be filed as a separate motion, not included in the motion to compel. Now, as you know, she was absolutely wrong, but to keep her happy, I requested my sanctions in a separate motion. So sure enough, come come the day of the hearing, I was the only attorney that was awarded discovery sanctions Uh, because I had followed her misguided procedure of bringing those as a separate motion. Alternatively, I could have just cited to authority that would have hopefully convinced her she was wrong. But the point is, I knew which way she would be leaning on this sort of motion by checking the tentative rulings on other such motions. Now, on that particular occasion, there was no doubt that I won the motion because I checked the tentative rulings from the prior week. But the problem is, You have a limited universe of prior decisions. Most courts publish their tentative rulings for the week of the hearings, and then the next week they just publish over them. So you have no ability to go back in time and see what the prior tentative rulings are. So you're pretty much limited to a week. Well, that's why this is such a great service. You enter the judge in the type of motion, and it provides all the tentative rulings meeting that criteria. I did a test search for Judge Aguirre's court in Orange County where I just had an anti-slap motion. And sure enough, there was the tentative for my case going on and on about my brilliant analysis and questioning why any attorney would oppose one of my motions. Okay, I made up that last part. But so too were all the tentative rulings from Judge Aguirre on anti-slap motions all the way back to 2014. Now, reading those tentatives, I could see that Judge Aguirre is very procedurally oriented. In one case, 
he reduced the requested attorney's fees by 75% because the attorney had not followed proper blue booking format when he was citing to cases, although the judge explained he could also have used the California style manual. Now, Judge Aguirre reasoned that if the attorney had been sloppy about the case sites, then the entire motion had probably been handled inefficiently. Kind of a crazy ruling, but that's the way the judge looked at it. Apparently, I used proper formatting because there was no such comment or reduction when I brought my motions to the court. But you can bet your sweet bippy I'm going to pull out my blue book the next time I prepare a motion for this particular court. So anyway, a great, great service being able to retrieve and review prior tentative rulings. This can be a real game changer in your law and motion practice, so be sure to check it out. Go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative. Let me say that again. californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative, and that will take you to where you need to be to check out this service. If you subscribe, enter the discount code TOPLAWFIRM, all one word, as the discount code, and they'll knock $10 off the price. Now, the thing about listing products and services I like on a podcast is that it becomes permanent. If the service goes out of business or if I find one I like better, this podcast episode will continue to send listeners there. That's why I create my own link, because I can send that to a different location if things change. So go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative, and don't forget the discount code TOPLAWFIRM. Now to today's topic. We're going to do a, a primer on California slap law. It was actually my wife's idea. Incredibly, she listens to every one of these podcasts, even though I have to imagine that a discussion of anti-slap law is not particularly entertaining if you're not involved with this area of the law. Even then, it's probably not a toe-tapper. So she said she'd love a summary of the law in order to get the big picture. That was a really good idea because some attorneys and many callers still get the basic concepts wrong. The most common error I encounter is thinking that the motive for filing the action is what makes it a slap. Attorneys want to challenge a complaint with an anti-slap motion because opposing counsel admitted that the complaint was filed for some improper purpose. Well, that's not the way it works. That is the intended result of the anti-slap motions, to get rid of cases that were brought for an improper purpose, but you don't get to base the motion on that motivation. And the irony of that is that what the attorney wants to do is conceptually a slap. Well, not really because the attorney is not filing an action, But the anti-slap motion would be challenging the person's exercise of their right of redress, which is what the anti-slap statute is designed to prevent. And I find that even the terminology is misunderstood. I think part of the problem is that slap with one P is a verb. So people call and say, I want to slap someone or I want to file a slap. Well, no, you don't. You don't want to do either one. Well, you may want to slap somebody, but I can't help you with that. Let's go through this slap business. What is a slap lawsuit and an anti-slap motion? SLAP, S-L-A-P-P, stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. So get that firmly in mind. The SLAP is the lawsuit. The SLAP is the physical written complaint the plaintiff or cross-complainant filed in superior court. If there is no lawsuit, there can be no anti-SLAP motion. I received a call a few days ago from someone wanting wanting to hire me to bring an anti-SLAP motion. He's one of these guys who sees conspiracies everywhere and files lawsuits, mostly in federal court, wanting to expose these conspiracies that only he sees. But his lawsuits keep getting dismissed, which only feeds his conspiracy theories. In his mind, the courts are only dismissing his actions because he's trying to expose the truth about the government, and the government is pulling strings of the court. So he wanted me to file an anti-slap motion against the government because they're interfering with his right of redress. 
But again, the L in SLAP stands for lawsuit. The government isn't suing him. The government is bringing motions to dismiss to get rid of his lawsuits. The government is using its right of redress to dispose of the actions. There is no lawsuit to attack and hence no basis for an anti-SLAP motion. Even if the government is having him locked up on a regular basis in order to silence him, There is no lawsuit and hence no basis for an anti-slap motion. I tried to explain this to him, but he screamed that I was part of the conspiracy and hung up on me. A slap is a lawsuit that is intended to censor, intimidate, and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon their criticism or opposition. That's the S in slap. That is the strategic part. By filing a slap, the plaintiff doesn't care whether he wins the lawsuit and often knows he has no chance of prevailing. The plaintiff's goals instead are accomplished if the defendant succumbs to fear, intimidation, mounting legal costs, or simple exhaustion and abandons the criticism. And as a bonus, if the slap plaintiff can garner notice in the media or even among the defendant's circle of friends and family, a slap may also intimidate others from participating in the debate. I see this, and I think this is a good example, I see this all the time with Yelp reviews. A lot of very bad people post false Yelp reviews, but even more people post accurate criticisms of businesses they've done done business with. They had a bad experience and they want the world to know about this bad experience. Now, my firm won't take a case that seeks to silence a fair criticism, but sadly, most attorneys don't have that compunction. They send a cease and desist letter threatening to sue. So the person who posted the review on Yelp calls me wanting to know what they should do. All I can tell them is that if they can back up what they said, or if we can show that it was just an opinion, they should prevail at the end of the day and should get all of their attorney's fees back if they bring an anti-slap motion. But as you can expect, most have no heart to fight the good fight. They complain that the waiting room in the tire shop was dirty and that they were charged too much for the road hazard insurance, and here they are being sued for defamation. It's just they're, they're not so invested in the review that they're willing to spend thousands of dollars fighting it in court, so they take down the review. That is a really good example of the purpose of a slap. And an anti-slap motion is the tool designed to get rid of those types of cases. But as I've just illustrated, sometimes even then it's not available just for economic reasons. So we've gone through the S and the L of a slap. What do the remaining three letters stand for? Against public participation. And that's intentionally broad. California's anti-slap law is contained in Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16, And the heart of the legislation is contained in subpart E. And here are the important parts, and this is really the core of an anti-slap analysis, as you can imagine. It begins with subsection B1, which lays it all out. Section B1 states, A cause of action against a person arising from any act of that person in furtherance of the person's right of petition or free speech under the United States Constitution or the California Constitution in connection with a public issue, shall be subject to a special motion to strike unless the court determines that the plaintiff has established that there is a probability that the plaintiff will prevail on the claim. Now let's freeze right there. Focus on that first sentence. I'm going to paraphrase it slightly. A slap is a cause of action against a person arising from any act of that person in furtherance of the person's right of petition or free speech in connection with a public issue and those shall be subject to a special motion to strike. That is the next major source of confusion. The act of furtherance of a person's right of free speech has to be in connection with a public issue. So here's where the confusion comes in. Let's take the example of Jane. Jane lives in a neighborhood governed by a homeowners association. Jane plants roses in her front yard. Roses are prohibited under the HOA rules. Jane goes to a meeting of the HOA to beg permission to keep her beautiful roses. 
When the board members deny her request, she calls one of them an adulterer. The board member wants to sue for defamation and goes to an attorney to ask if the lawsuit will be a slap. The attorney, because the person didn't go to Morrison Stone, answers, no, that wouldn't be a slap because it's just not a matter of public interest. It's not a public issue in any way. The roses or whether or not you're an adulterer are not public issues, so this doesn't fall under the anti-slap statute, the attorney opines. But the statute defines that term. Subsection E provides, as used in this section, an act in furtherance of a person's right of petition or free speech under the United States or California Constitution in connection with a public issue includes... And then there's four sections. One, any written or oral statement or writing made before a legislative, executive, or judicial proceeding or any other official proceeding authorized by law. That last clause is very important. We'll get to that in a minute. Two, any written or oral statement or writing made in conjunction with an issue under consideration or review by a legislative, executive, or judicial body or any other official proceeding authorized by law. Again, that's very important. Or three, any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest. Let's freeze again. There is one more subsection, but everything I've read so far is defined as an issue of public interest regardless of the content. Jane made her comment at an HOA meeting. The fact that no one cares one whit about Jane's roses or whether the board member is an adulterer except maybe the board member's husband, has zero relevance to whether this is an issue of public interest. Subsection E2 provided that any statement made in conjunction with an issue under consideration or review by a legislative, executive, or judicial body, or any other official proceeding authorized by law. Comments at an HOA meeting are protected and Jane would win an anti-slap motion, contrary to what that attorney believed. Courts and attorneys struggle with this, so the confusion is understandable. For example, in a case called Cabrera v. Alum, the plaintiff sued the defendant for statements made about the plaintiff's homeowners association candidacy at an HOA meeting. Defendant responded with an anti-slap motion, but the trial court denied the motion, finding that the speech at the HOA meeting was not protected activity, was not a protected activity because it was not an issue of public interest. The court of appeal reversed, finding that the anti-slap motion should have been granted because the statements were made in a public forum at a homeowners association's annual meeting. The Cabrera court found that the HOA meeting fell under subsection E3, which provides that any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest. Because the court of appeal found that it fell under E3, it had to then analyze whether the subject of the speech was an issue of public interest. The court found that what was being discussed at the association meeting concerned a matter of public interest because it involved the qualifications of a candidate for the homeowners association. In fact, the court went even further and determined that the person running for office was a limited public figure, and therefore the statements made about her had to be made with malice to be actionable. But I contend that none of this analysis was necessary because the subject matter was already a matter of public interest under the plain language of Section 425.16E2, which provides any written or oral statement or writing made in connection with an issue under consideration or review by a legislative, executive, or judicial body or any other official proceeding authorized by law. Remember I mentioned that earlier and said it'd be important. Well, here it is. An HOA meeting is an official proceeding authorized by law, and therefore any discussion during an HOA meeting falls under the anti-SLAPP statute. Many cases agree with me. In a case called Op. Optional Capital Inc. versus DOS Corporation, the court specifically stated, 
If the speech is made or the activity is conducted in an official proceeding authorized by law, it need not be connected to a public issue. Now, this is supposed to be a broad overview, and I feel like I'm getting too much into the minutia, so let me summarize it. Don't go too far astray thinking that a case only falls under the anti-slap statute if it involves an issue of public interest. I just want you to understand that under many circumstances, the actor's speech will automatically be deemed to fall under the anti-slap statute. If the activity falls under sections 1, 2, or 3 of section 425.16e, then at least arguably it is automatically a matter of public interest. Then comes the final section of 425.16e, and that provides any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. This is the section where you need to decide if the speech is is in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. Let me give you an example. Let's use Jane again. Jane had a really bad experience with her plastic surgeon, but she's not content to simply leave a review on Yelp or on Vitals.com. She creates her own website and blasts the doctor. That type of situation will generally be analyzed under 425.16E4. Again, that provides any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. The case of Grenier versus Taylor states public interest protected by the anti-strategic lawsuit against public participation, slap, statute is not mere curiosity, and a matter of public interest should be something of concern to a substantial number of people. So in the case of this website by this one patient against this one doctor, it would likely be found that this is not a matter of public interest since it would not be of concern to a substantial number of people. On the other hand, the courts more and more are giving a very broad interpretation to matters of public interest. A court could easily find, and some courts have found, that the qualifications of a doctor are always a matter of public interest. So now you have a good basic summary of the anti-slap statute. When you receive a lawsuit or if you're contemplating filing a lawsuit, go to Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16e to remind yourself of everything that can potentially constitute a slap. But remember, the anti-slap analysis consists of two steps. First, it must be determined whether the activity or speech falls under the anti-slap statute. That's what we've been talking about. And if it does, then it must be determined whether the plaintiff has a reasonable likelihood of success on the complaint. In other words, just because a complaint falls under the anti-slap statute, it does not automatically follow that the case will be dismissed. Going back to our case of Jane and her website devoted to the doctor, if the doctor sues for defamation and the court decides that Jane's website involves a matter of public interest, then the burden will shift to the doctor to prove that he is likely to succeed with his lawsuit. Truth is an absolute defense to a claim for defamation, but since it is a defense, the burden would be on Jane to prove the truth of her statements. If Jane can't prove the truth of her statements, then the doctor would survive Jane's anti-slap motion. Filing a complaint that will invite an anti-slap motion is sometimes absolutely necessary and appropriate in order to help a victim of defamation. There is obviously much, much more to know about the anti-slap statutes. That's why I've devoted a podcast to the topic, but now you have a good starting point. Let me just say a few words about some of the procedural issues since that seems to be another basis of confusion. First and foremost, understand that the anti-slap statutes apply equally to complaints and cross-complaints. Many of my anti-slap motions arise from cross-complaints. Just about anything related to litigation is protected and privileged, so a cross-complaint that seeks to recover damages from a plaintiff for daring to file a complaint will almost always be a slap. If you are a defendant and you feel that the plaintiff's action is frivolous, You can't sue until you've prevailed on the action. 
then you can bring a malicious prosecution action, but don't try to do it by way of a cross-complaint. It's not permitted. Understand, though, that a malicious prosecution action automatically falls under the anti-slap statute because you're suing someone for having exercised their right of redress. Sadly, I've seen many attorneys snatch defeat from the jaws of victory by pursuing a malicious prosecution action. They prevail on behalf of their clients on the underlying action and then file a malicious prosecution action, usually naming both the original plaintiff and the attorney who represented the plaintiff. But to prevail against an attorney, you must be able to show that the attorney knew there was no reasonable basis for the action. That's a very difficult standard because the attorney is entitled to rely on the representations of his or her own client. So plaintiff sues defendant, defendant wins, defendant then sues plaintiff for malicious prosecution, the original plaintiff then brings an anti-slap motion and prevails because the original defendant can't show the complaint was brought with malice. The defendant who originally escaped liability is now hit with a judgment for all of the attorney fees incurred in bringing the anti-slap motion. Procedurally, the most important thing to know involves the timing of the anti-slap motion. The anti-slap statute provides that the motion may be brought within 60 days of service of the complaint. Notice that the wording, though, says that it may be brought within 60 days of service of the complaint. But as I explained in episode 15, it's never too late to file an anti-slap motion. You can file an anti-slap motion at any time. But if it is after the 60 days, the court has discretion as to whether it will consider your motion. Obviously, therefore, it's always better to file your motion within the 60 days so you can be assured that it will at least be considered. But note also that every amended complaint or cross-complaint restarts the clock. Even if somebody files an amended complaint two months before trial, you now have a new opportunity to bring an anti-slap motion, and the court must consider your anti-slap motion even though it's long after the 60 days that the original complaint was filed. The anti-slap statute also provides that an anti-slap motion must be heard within 30 days of filing, but this is impossible in most courts due to the congestion of their dockets. The anti-slap statute also provides that the hearing doesn't have to be within 30 days if the court's docket won't permit it. I explain all of this in great detail in episode 3. So there you have it, a broad overview of the anti-slap statute and procedures. If you find it all a bit overwhelming, that's why I'm here. If you have any questions, email me at morris at toplawfirm.com or call me at 714-954-0700. Now for a couple of quick war stories to illustrate important issues that came up this week that coincidentally tie in with some of the things we've just been discussing. Now I'm often retained as an expert to opine on the reasonableness of attorney's fees after a successful anti-slap motion. My services are necessary, sadly, because far too many attorneys make ridiculous claims for attorney's fees after they win an anti-slap motion. In this particular case, I was retained to opine on a fee application where the attorney is seeking $70,000 in attorney's fees. Now, what made this one slightly entertaining was the fact that the attorney had apparently called up a previous fee application to prepare this application. So although he was asking for $70,000, he repeatedly left in references to the $100,000 that he'd apparently sought in a prior fee application. So I guess we should have felt fortunate that he was able to do this anti-slap motion so much more affordably than his last anti-slap motion where he sought $100,000. But the moral of this story is that the case arose from the scenario I discussed earlier. This was a scenario where, after prevailing in the underlying action, the original defendant had sued for malicious prosecution. The defendant had named the plaintiff's attorney in the action as well. I see this a lot, and it usually does not end well. It's called malicious prosecution for a reason. You have to show that the action was brought with malice. There's a case called SWAT Fame Inc. versus Goldstein, and there's many other cases that hold the same way. 
that hold that an attorney can rely on what they are told by their clients. If the case turns out to have no merit, even if you can show that the client knew the case had no merit, it doesn't follow that the attorney knew the case had no merit. You have to be able to show some point in time where the attorney came to know that the case was without merit but continued to prosecute it anyway. Here, the party felt that he'd provided enough documentation to the attorney for the plaintiff that he should have recognized that the case did not have merit. But the court disagreed and granted the anti-slap motion on the basis that the attorney never knew that the case was without merit. So the moral of this first war story is that you should never sue opposing counsel for malicious prosecution unless you have an absolute smoking gun point in time where the attorney had to have known that the case was without merit. Our final war story involves an anti-slap motion I brought in federal court. I was retained to bring an anti-slap motion in the Central District, and anti-slap motions in federal court are always fun because California's round anti-slap statute is forced into the square hole of federal procedure. If you've never researched the issue, you may be unaware that the federal courts did not embrace anti-slap motions. Originally, the federal courts were routinely holding that you could not even bring an anti-slap motion in federal court. Now it's pretty settled, but not not universally, that you can bring an anti-slap motion in federal court, but there are some twists and turns. A federal court sitting in diversity can entertain an anti-slap motion, and the court can consider an anti-slap motion brought against state claims being pursued in federal court. But for reasons we'll discuss another day, the federal court won't consider an anti-slap motion against a purely federal claim. Now, I'm recording this episode on the last day of 2015, so if by the time you listen to this, a federal anti-slap statute has been passed, which is going to happen eventually, then you can probably disregard everything I just said about anti-slap motions in federal court. But anyway, here's the fun part of the case. By the time the client hired me, we were were already up against the 60-day deadline for bringing an anti-slap motion. In fact, the 60th day fell on the day after Thanksgiving. I really wanted to be able to use the weekend following Thanksgiving to polish the motion rather than to rush to get it out on Friday. So I did some research to confirm that I didn't have to file the motion on that Friday and that therefore the deadline would carry over to the following Monday. When I received the opposition to my anti-slap motion, I saw that the plaintiff's first line of attack was to claim that my motion was late. You see, the day following Thanksgiving is not an official federal holiday, even though the courts are closed. Plaintiff's counsel had found a rule stating that the day following Thanksgiving is an administrative day, but since it's not an official holiday, it's not treated as a holiday for purposes of calculating filing deadlines. But opposing counsel apparently didn't know about Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 6A-6C. That rule provides, quote, For periods that are measured after an event, a legal holiday is any other day declared a holiday by the state where the district court is located. In California, the day following Thanksgiving is a state holiday. Opposing counsel spent a lot of time in our opposition arguing a false point that was easily refuted. The moral of that story is to know your civil procedure. I hope you found this primer on the anti-slap law to be useful and informative. The primary takeaway is to be aware of what is defined as a slap under section 425.16e and don't assume that the speech or conduct is not a public issue just because it involves a small number of people. And if you're a litigator, go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative and check out the tentative ruling database I discussed. It's a huge help for any type of law in motion. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week, have a great year, and try not to slap anyone.
I talk about this case a lot, but it's an ongoing saga, and it seems like something new comes up every time I'm ready to record a podcast. As you'll recall, this is the case where an attorney sued numerous people for defamation for daring to question her competence on Facebook. Most of the defendants are representing themselves, and two of the defendants brought anti-slap motions that were denied. I came in and I transferred the case to a better judge, and since then, every anti-slap motion that has been brought has been granted. One of those anti-slap motions was brought by a defendant who is also an attorney. The claims against him are utterly crazy, and most are protected by the litigation privilege. He too brought a successful anti-slap motion, but it did not completely extract him from the case. So when it came time for him to answer the remaining cause of action... He couldn't resist, and he filed a cross-complaint back against the plaintiff attorney alleging seven causes of action. I read his cross-complaint and immediately saw that it was a slap. So here's an attorney who just successfully brought an anti-slap motion against this attorney. So he's obviously aware of the anti-slap statutes, and yet he filed a slap by way of cross-complaint. I've said it here many times before. The most dangerous document you can file from an anti-slap standpoint is a cross-complaint. By way of a strange analogy, you may be aware that the most likely time you will damage your car is when you're backing up. According to insurance statistics, 15 seconds of backing up in a parking garage is more likely to damage your car than driving for 5 hours in bumper-to-bumper traffic. That's because there's always blind spots when you're backing up. Well, apparently so it is with cross-complaints. For whatever reason, cross-complaints apparently create big blind spots for attorneys. The same attorney who successfully brought an anti-slap motion against the plaintiff turned around and filed this big fat slap against her. When I read the cross-complaint, I just couldn't believe it. And understandably and predictably, the attorney's now been hit with an anti-slap motion. You know how some uh, cars or trucks have backup alarms? I'm I'm thinking of inventing some software, maybe a plug-in for Word, that when you type the word cross-complaint, it starts beeping. Or better yet, maybe I should set it up so it automatically takes you to californiaslaplaw.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.